Here's a man that everybody is going to enjoy meeting. He's Roy M. Cohn, who is confidential assistant to the United States Attorney General in this area, Irving H. Saypool. And, of course, they've been very busy prosecuting the communists and Communist Party. Hi, Roy. Hi, Jack. Uh, I'm telling people out there how very busy you have been and uh, on your way sort of to a semi-rest, as it were, after prosecuting the uh, various red echelons in this country. Well... The job isn't quite over yet, and I think the best token of that is I have a suitcase full of Marxist, Leninist, Stalinist literature with me. You know, you've been, uh, uh, you go way back, actually, you're a very young fellow, but at the same time, I know you go way back because I think you were in on the Remington deal. I tried part uh, of that, yeah. Yeah, this Dashiell Hammett business, and of course, all the various uh, Communist Party uh, members who are being prosecuted at the moment. Uh, what can you tell us, Roy, that... Uh, we might not know from uh, general newspaper coverage of the workings of the party in this country. What can we watch for as individual citizens? Well, of course, the communist... One thing we have to understand at the outset is that the Communist Party is not a political party. It's a criminal conspiracy. Its object is, as has been established by the verdict of a jury, the overthrow of the government of the United States by force and violence as soon as the right time arrives. In the meantime, plans are being made, that day comes, and the Communist Party's most important work is that of espionage in behalf of the Soviet Union, which means that it infiltrates our government, defense plans, every important place possible in order to steal information from us and give it to the Soviet Union. That has been established by the verdict of some juries in this district during this year. Roy Cohn was one of the most influential political operators in the United States. Cohn's public reputation ranged from boy wonder to sleazy mob lawyer, and his impact on the country's political landscape cannot be overstated. Cohn's rise to prominence began during the height of the Red Scare, when he served as Joseph McCarthy's right-hand man. However, his influence extended far beyond the realm of anti-communist crusading. He was instrumental in securing electoral victories for prominent politicians in New York and beyond. In fact, years after his death, his billionaire protege, Donald J. Trump, would become the 45th president of the United States. What's interesting about Cohn is that, despite his immense influence, both his admirers and detractors have been reluctant to delve too deeply into his career and his business dealings. Perhaps. Part of this reluctance owes to Cohn's seemingly contradictory nature. He was an anti-communist crusader who closely collaborated with the FBI, yet he was also a confidant, business associate, and legal counsel to some of the biggest names in organized crime. Cohn's story is central when detailing the rise of the networks that are the focus of this series. He was once called New York City's preeminent manipulator because he was a one-man network of contacts reaching into City Hall, the mob, the press, the archdiocese, the disco jet set, the courts, and the backrooms of the Bronx and Brooklyn, where judges were made and political contributions were arranged. Cohn's ability to manipulate the press, politics, and much more may have been partially due to his ability to wield blackmail in a way similar to his close associate and friend, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. Perhaps, due to this particular relationship, much of the FBI file on Cohn, believed to be over 4,000 pages long in total, has still not been made publicly available, despite the best efforts of Cohn biographers and others over the years. 
Cohen's background and earlier career served as a useful window into how the world of above board and legitimate business and politics has intermingled with the criminal underworld throughout the decades. It's also clear that blackmail was critical to Cohn's ability to successfully navigate those murky gray areas between the legal and illegal. The story of Roy Cohn's rise to power is inextricably tied to the legacy of his father, Albert Al Cohn. Born to Polish immigrants, Al faced financial obstacles that forced him to forego high school. However, determined to succeed, he worked his way through City College, eventually graduating in 1903. He then attended New York Law School while simultaneously teaching high school classes, and he became a practicing lawyer in 1908. In 1910, Al Cohn became heavily involved in the Democratic Party clubhouses in the Bronx. He attended weekly meetings, worked the precincts, and sought to win the district's leader's favor. Through his hard work and political acumen, he developed strong connections to the Bronx Democrats and was appointed assistant district attorney for the Bronx by 1917. Al aspired to become a judge, but lacked the money required to secure such a position. In the political system of the time, payments were required from men who sought positions on the ballot as a form of fundraising. The more influential the position, the more significant the payment. Despite his financial limitations, Al continued to ascend through the ranks of New York's legal scene, becoming chief district attorney in 1923 under Bronx County District Attorney Edward Glennon. It was around this time that Al Cohn's life took a fateful turn. He met Dora Marcus, the daughter of a wealthy banking family. According to friends and members of the Marcus family, the relationship between Al and Dora quickly led to an arranged marriage. Joseph S. Marcus, Dora's father, essentially offered Al Cohn the money and influence necessary to become a judge in exchange for marrying Dora. The couple married in January 1924, and a year later, Al Cohn was appointed Bronx County Judge by New York Governor Al Smith. Following their marriage, Al and Dora argued about where to live, with Al initially winning and securing their place in the Bronx. Al sought to stay in the Bronx due to his desire to stay connected to the political connections he had developed, for it was in the Bronx where he handled the Democratic Party's Jewish patronage on behalf of Bronx party boss and political heavyweight Edward J. Flynn. Al Cohn is regarded as a protege of Flynn's, who came to wield substantial power in the Democratic Party. His life is a testament to the American dream of upward mobility, where hard work and determination can overcome even the most formidable obstacles. But it is also a story of how power and influence can be obtained through connections and alliances, sometimes at the cost of personal happiness and integrity. In 1921, Al Cohn established the Pontiac Democratic Club at the request of Flynn. The club was designed to weaken the political base of Flynn's rival, Patrick Kane, and over time it became a significant force in local elections. Years later, Roy Cohn would describe his father as Flynn's chief lieutenant during this period, highlighting the importance of their relationship. Al was extremely loyal to the Democratic Party. As historian Christopher Elias notes, when the party needed Al to rule a certain way for reasons political or personal, he followed through. When they needed his support for a specific candidate, he gave it. When the son of a friend and fellow Democratic operative killed a young woman in an automobile accident, Al made a late night visit to the police station and straightened it out. 
Al Cohn's service to the party and Flynn paid off when New York governor and future president Franklin Delano Roosevelt appointed him to the Bronx Supreme Court in 1929, making him Roosevelt's first judicial appointment. This appointment cemented Cohn's status as one of the most powerful judges in the state. It also demonstrated the close relationship between Flynn and Roosevelt, with Flynn serving as one of Roosevelt's most senior strategists for years. Eight years later, Cohn was appointed to the state Supreme Court's appellate division. However, like many of the networks explored in this series, the political machine in which Cohn was enmeshed was interwoven with the city's criminal underworld. The connections between politicians, judges, and organized crime in New York City during this time were often blurred, and the influence of criminal elements could be felt throughout the city's political landscape. Many mainstream sources point to 1931 as a turning point when Lucky Luciano sent two hitmen to intimidate Harry Perry, a co-leader of Manhattan's 2nd Assembly District, to step down in favor of Albert Marinelli. Prior to this, the National Crime Syndicate had already established cozy ties with labor unions, which were a key component of the Democrat Party's power base during the 1920s. Arnold Rothstein, a well-known mobster whom we discussed as being intricately involved in the China-Burma-India opium trade, is credited with initiating this arrangement. Albert Marinelli's ties to the mob dated back to the 1920s as well. He owned a trucking company that Luciano managed during Prohibition, and it was Luciano who helped Marinelli become the first Italian-American district leader at Tammany Hall long before the incident with Perry. These ties speak to the National Crime Syndicate's early influence over New York politics through Tammany Hall. After Harry Perry stepped aside and ceded his position to Albert Marinelli, the National Crime Syndicate's influence over New York City's politics, particularly the Democratic Party, became brazen. Decades-old reports in New York Magazine describe the move as giving Marinelli, and by extension, Luciano, control over who was chosen to serve on grand juries, as well as the counting of votes in local elections. During the same period Al Cohn was actively involved in New York Democratic politics, the National Crime Syndicate had significant sway over top politicians. For example, Meyer Lansky was known to have contributed to the political campaigns of Al Smith, the governor of New York, during much of the 1920s. Smith was a prominent figure in Tammany Hall, the notorious political machine that controlled Democratic Party nominations and was synonymous with corruption. Tammany boss Charles Murphy, who had worked to improve the organization's image, mentored Smith and is credited with his success in politics. However, Murphy's efforts to clean up Tammany's reputation were short-lived, and following his death, many of Tammany's top figures remained closely linked to the city's criminal underworld. In 1932, the National Crime Syndicate tried to rig the Democratic National Convention in favor of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Al Smith adamantly warned Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, and Frank Costello that Roosevelt would betray them. Smith specifically warned that Roosevelt would break his promise to restrain an official inquiry into criminal activity in New York City. Lansky and Luciano ignored Smith's warnings, but it turned out to be true. As Roosevelt allowed the inquiry, led by Judge Samuel Seabury, to advance after his nomination was cemented. 
The inquiry exposed extensive criminal activity being conducted by Tammany politicians, leading several top officials to resign. Even Jimmy Walker, the Tammany-backed mayor of New York City and Al Smith's own protege, resigned and fled to Paris to avoid charges. According to Luciano, it was commonly known at the time that the National Crime Syndicate controlled most of New York City's delegates to the convention, demonstrating their considerable influence over the party's dealings in the city. However, Seabury and Roosevelt's combined determination to clean up the Democratic Party's image in New York saw Tammany's influence wane due to its association with organized crime becoming public knowledge. Despite this, the National Crime Syndicate's influence over New York politics remained strong for years to come. Al Cohn remained deeply involved in Democratic politics during this period. As was stated, he had a particularly close relationship with Edward Flynn, who had control of the Democratic Party in the Bronx since 1922. Despite not being a member of Tammany Hall, Flynn was a protege of Tammany Hall boss Charles Murphy and became favored by Franklin Delano Roosevelt after the Seabury inquiry, supposedly because Flynn had managed to keep his district free of corruption. However, some argue that Flynn only appeared to be clean, and he later protected mob-linked politician William O'Dwyer, a famous family friend of the Cones, from facing criminal charges. William O'Dwyer, not unlike New York Governor Thomas Dewey, rose to prominence in the public eye for his efforts to take down organized crime, specifically Meyer Lansky's Murder Incorporated and syndicate boss Louis Lepke Bucalter. However, the reality of the Bucalter case may have been different than what was publicly reported. It has been suggested that the case was actually the consolidation of mob power into fewer hands rather than ex-cop O'Dwyer bravely taking on the mob. As was noted by Sally Denton and Roger Morris in their book, The Money and the Power, Lansky himself had arranged for Bucalter to be arrested by the FBI and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in 1937. This alliance served multiple purposes, including removing a Lansky rival, gratifying J. Edgar Hoover and FBN director Harry Anslinger in their mutual obsession with popular public image and further compromising federal law enforcement, which was growing ever more dependent on informers and double agents for its success. Both Dewey and O'Dwyer prosecuted Bucalter with great zeal, gaining considerable recognition for themselves in the process. However, Bucalter had already been consigned to death by both his friends and the government before Dewey and O'Dwyer were ever involved, casting doubt on the narrative that Bucalter's prison sentences and eventual death sentence were merely the result of Dewey's and O'Dwyer's prosecutorial abilities. Further doubt regarding the official story is raised when considering the two's relationship to the same crime syndicate and Dewey's connections to the Mary Carter Paint Company and Resorts International that were discussed in episode one. Interestingly, during the same year he secured Bucalter's death sentence, O'Dwyer was also meeting with Frank Costello. O'Dwyer later became mayor of New York in 1945, largely due to his anti-corruption public image. However, an investigation launched by an attorney O'Dwyer had once hired, Miles McDonald, brought that image and O'Dwyer's career crashing down. In 1950, McDonald began investigating Harry Gross, who had been running a multi-million dollar gambling empire in the city. The investigation quickly grew, revealing a series of related rackets throughout the city, most of which led back to James Moran, 
O'Dwyer's right-hand man during his time as a judge, district attorney, and now mayor. In the midst of the investigation into James Moran, the pressure from the top was mounting. Mayor O'Dwyer denounced the investigation and called it a witch hunt, while Ed Flynn urgently requested a meeting with President Harry Truman. Official records of this meeting do not exist, but it is speculated that Flynn wanted to discuss the implications of the investigation on the Democratic Party and Truman himself. After the meeting, Truman met with the head of New York's Democratic Party and close friend of Flynn's, Paul Fitzpatrick, as well as Eleanor Roosevelt, who still held considerable influence in the party. What McDonald's investigation would reveal, Flynn and Fitzpatrick knew, was that Mayor O'Dwyer was the front man for a system of citywide corruption that was administered by Moran, the mayor's closest political associate. Worse, as the public would find out the following August from the public testimony of a gangster named Irving Sherman that O'Dwyer and Moran had been meeting personally with the syndicate boss Frank Costello as far back as 1941. And as a former chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Flynn also knew that the urban political operations that had helped elect Franklin Roosevelt to the presidency four times and Truman once were based on a system of unsavory alliances. Putting O'Dwyer on the stand would put the Democratic Party in New York and elsewhere on trial. One way to keep O'Dwyer safe from McDonald's grand jury was to get him out of the country. This is precisely what happened. Despite the mounting evidence against O'Dwyer, President Truman appointed him as ambassador to Mexico, allowing him to avoid any charges or further scrutiny. Fitzpatrick expressed his gratitude to Truman for protecting O'Dwyer from prosecution, writing in a letter your recent announcement of the pending appointment of the ambassador to Mexico again proves to me your deep understanding of many problems and your kindness in rendering assistance. May I just say thanks. However, in March 1951, O'Dwyer was forced to return to the U.S. from Mexico City to testify before the Cofaver Committee on his alleged dealings with organized crime. During his testimony, he admitted to having visited Frank Costello's home in 1941 and to appointing friends and relatives of powerful mobsters to public offices, though he became evasive when asked about how much he knew about their ties to organized crime. A subsequent report from the committee stated that during O'Dwyer's term as district attorney and mayor, he and his appointees did not take any effective action against the top echelon of organized crime. In fact, his time as mayor had contributed to the growth of organized crime, racketeering, and gangsterism in New York City. James Moran, O'Dwyer's close ally, would be convicted on 23 counts of extortion for his role in the corruption that McDonald had exposed less than a year earlier. If Bronx political boss Ed Flynn was indeed free of scandal and corruption, his direct involvement with the White House to protect the corruption that enabled O'Dwyer is hard to justify. Rather, Flynn stepped in to protect the system of unsavory alliances that had given his party power, including obvious organized crime ties. Adding to the complexity of the situation, a young Roy Cohn was heavily involved in O'Dwyer's election campaign, at one point bragging about finding dirt on O'Dwyer's Republican challenger. This use of dirt and blackmail in politics would later become a defining feature of Roy Cohn's career and ultimately his legacy. Roy Cohn's upbringing was marked by privilege. 
but his family's success was not solely due to his father's influence. As we discussed, much of Albert Cohn's success can be attributed to his marriage to Dora Marcus, a member of an elite New York Jewish family that would later be mired in scandal and controversy in connection with their Wall Street activities during the Great Depression. Joseph S. Marcus, Dora's father, was a Russian Jewish immigrant who started his career in the garment industry before founding the Public Bank of New York in 1906. He later disposed of his interest in the Public Bank of New York and chartered the Bank of the United States in 1913. One reason for Marcus's decision to create the Bank of the United States was apparently due to problems at the public bank caused by the hiring of William Kolsch as cashier. According to the New York Times, Kolsch's presence at the bank caused friction among the bank's directors. Joseph Marcus created the Bank of the United States alongside William Kolsch and Saul Singer. However, they had different men file the bank's incorporation to conceal their involvement and avoid alerting the leadership of Public Bank that Marcus and Kolsch were the real force behind their new competition. Marcus's new for-profit enterprise was immediately controversial, sparking tensions between the two banks. Public Bank's leadership complained about the location of Marcus's new bank and argued that there was no public necessity for such additional banking facilities in that particular block. Public Bank also took issue with the name, which they argued sounded too similar to historical government-linked institutions. They argued that its name could potentially mislead the uninformed into believing it had a direct connection to the United States government. To drive this point home, Public Bank sent a letter to the Senate Banking Committee written on their behalf by Samuel I. Frankenstein. According to a report on the letter by the New York Times, Frankenstein argued ignorant foreigners would believe that the United States government was interested in this bank and that it was a branch of the United States Treasury in Washington. And if the bank should fail, these poor depositors would bewail the fact that they had entrusted their scant savings to the United States government. He then added, it must be evident to any impartial mind that the motive and purpose in selecting this very peculiar and misleading name for a bank to be located in a neighborhood almost exclusively inhabited by foreigners, especially when so many other appropriate names could have been so easily adopted, was not a laudable one. This name was not selected through pure accident. In spite of public banks' objections, the Bank of the United States was granted its charter by New York State Superintendent of Banks, George Van Tool Jr. Interestingly, Van Tool Jr. would subsequently become Vice President and Director of Bank of the United States. Although it started with a modest $100,000 in working capital, the bank quickly began attracting business and deposits from the local Jewish immigrant community. By 1925, it had grown to five branches. Historian Beth S. Wenger notes that the bank became a point of pride for the New York Jewish community who eagerly embraced the new bank, with many opening savings accounts and borrowing money for fledgling businesses. In 1926, legal action was taken against the bank, requiring an investigation of its financial records. However, the case was dismissed by Judge Joseph Proskauer of the New York State Supreme Court, who claimed that the plaintiffs had failed to present sufficient evidence. However, 
There are questions about the impartiality of Proskauer in this case, as he had close ties to the same political machine as Albert Cohn and had been appointed by New York Governor Al Smith, who was known to have links to organized crime. Proskauer also served as Smith's political advisor during election campaigns that were financed by Meyer Lansky. All of this occurred while Proskauer was serving on the New York State Supreme Court and subsequently the Appellate Court. Despite these potential conflicts of interest, Proskauer was later appointed as the chair of the New York State Crime Commission in the early 1950s. This appointment raises further questions about the impartiality of Proskauer. The New York State Crime Commission had been established under the direction of Governor Thomas Dewey and was closely tied to both John Foster Dules and Alan Dules, who was serving as CIA director at the time of the commission's activities. Dewey had previously released Lucky Luciano from prison after his involvement in Operation Underworld. After the Crime Commission's work was completed, Dewey's former chief assistant, Paul Lockwood, became a top executive at Louis Rosenstiel's mob-linked Shenley Industries in 1955, while Dewey himself officially became a business associate of Lansky frontmen in 1958. Meyer Lansky had also previously donated to Dewey's unsuccessful bid for the U.S. presidency in 1944. The Proskauer-led Crime Commission was insignificant in terms of its end results, especially when compared to the impact of the Kefauver Committee the year before, when Dewey had been called to testify due to his suspected mob ties. This suggests that Proskauer, like Albert Cohn, Ed Flynn, and others, could be counted on to protect certain influential actors within the system of unsavory alliances that was woven throughout New York City. The case against Marcus's bank becomes even more suspect when you consider the connections between the key players. Joseph Marcus had promised Albert Cohn a judgeship in exchange for marrying his daughter Dora, which raises serious questions about the influence of the Marcus family in legal and judicial circles. It's important to note that Cohn had already been appointed as a judge for Bronx County by Governor Al Smith just a year before this case was brought against Marcus's bank in 1925. This adds yet another layer of potential conflicts of interest to the already murky situation. Bernard K. Marcus, Roy Cohn's Uncle Bernie, and the son of Joseph Marcus took over the Bank of the United States after his father's death in 1927 giving him complete control over the bank's affairs. Prior to his father's death, Bernard had been involved in the bank's leadership since 1919. After becoming president of the bank, he went on an acquisition and merger spree, resulting in the bank's rapid growth from five branches in 1925 to 62 in 1930. This included two major mergers in 1928 and two more in 1929, making the Bank of the United States the third largest bank in New York City by May 1929. The bank even became a member of the Federal Reserve of New York, which was greatly influenced by the Warburg brothers, Felix and Paul, with Paul Warburg being the main architect of the privately owned Federal Reserve banking system and a powerful force at the central bank during its early years. Due to the Bank of the United States' apparent success, Bernard was praised as a financial wizard, but it was soon revealed that the growth was largely due to fraud and corruption by the Marcuses and Saul Singer, 
This validated earlier concerns about the bank's practices that had been dismissed by Proskauer. Despite the Black Tuesday stock market crash of 1929, Bernard assured shareholders that the bank was stable. The bank subsequently entered negotiations for its largest merger yet, which would have resulted in the bank managing $1 billion in deposits. This would-be bank was said to be managed by J. Herbert Case, the then head of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, of which the Marcus-run bank was a member. The merger was set to create another Wall Street behemoth, with Goldman Sachs having a substantial interest in the new bank. The terms of the merger were reportedly negotiated in November 1929. However, in December 1930, rumors began to circulate that the Bank of the United States was insolvent. This led to a run on the bank by nervous investors and depositors, many of whom were Jewish. By midday, over $2 million had been withdrawn, and tens of thousands of the bank's estimated 400,000 clients had gathered outside the doors of the bank's Bronx branch, prompting the police to be called in to maintain order. The panic quickly spread to other branches, but by that time, all of the other branches had closed their doors. The bank's stock suffered a massive sell-off, plummeting from $91 a share the previous year to just $3 a share. Bernard Marcus assured investors that the bank would reopen following the planned merger, but the merger ultimately fell through after the clearinghouse banks involved in the deal examined the books of the Marcus-run bank and pulled out. Superintendent of Banks Joseph Broderick tried to rescue the Bank of the United States with the help of Wall Street's leading bankers, but they failed to find a solution. As a result, New York Governor Franklin D. Roosevelt ordered the bank to be closed, making its failure the biggest in U.S. history at the time. An investigation was subsequently launched, and it quickly became clear that there had been fraud involved. As the investigators dug deeper into the Bank of the United States collapse, it became apparent that Bernard Marcus and Saul Singer were at the center of an elaborate scheme of illegal activity. They had used depositor funds to purchase the bank's own stock to drive up its value. Additionally, they had loaned out over $37 million in highly suspicious transactions, including $10 million in mostly unsecured loans to bank directors and their companies, and $5.5 million in loans to 16 insolvent subsidiaries of the bank in the months leading up to its collapse. Marcus and Singer also siphoned off funds from the bank's reserve to finance their own real estate investments. In the aftermath of the bank's collapse, public hearings uncovered shocking revelations about the bank's officers. Two months before the bank shut down, they burned over a thousand bundles of bank records in an incinerator at the Beresford Apartments, a complex owned by a subsidiary of the Bank of the United States. Bernard Marcus, in a style that would later be echoed by his infamous nephew, Roy Cohn, fiercely fought the investigation and even sought to remove the lead investigator from the case. Despite their efforts, both Marcus and Saul Singer were found guilty of fraud and sentenced to three years in Sing Sing Maximum Security Prison. Their subsequent appeal was unsuccessful. Members of the Marcus family, including Roy's mother, Dora, argued that the failure of the bank was due to anti-Semitism by other banking leaders in New York. Certain New York newspapers echoed these claims. According to this theory, Episcopalian J.P. Morgan, 
the Anglo-Saxon-dominated New York Clearinghouse and the German Jewish bankers, including the Kuhns, Loebs, and Lehmans, had allowed the Russian Jewish Marcus family to fail when they could have saved the bank. Dora Marcus referred to these figures as a dirty anti-Semitic cabal seeking to destroy her family because of their Russian Jewish origins. It's worth noting that other banks throughout U.S. history have been allowed to fail without anti-Semitism being blamed. Additionally, the German Jewish banking establishment was partly dominated by the Warburg family, and in June 1930, just months before the collapse of the Marcus-owned bank, Albert Cohn, Bernard Marcus's brother-in-law, was the guest of honor at a lunch hosted by Felix Warburg. This suggests that the alleged hatred held by the German Jewish banking establishment for the Marcus family did not exist at the time. Allegations of anti-Semitism aside, there are other factors that may have contributed to the failure of the Bank of the United States. For one, the magnitude of the bank's fraud may have been too great for any other banks to step in and save it. It's also possible that the German Jewish banking establishment was upset that a Jewish-owned bank had committed such a massive fraud against the mostly Jewish depositors. The Bank of the United States had targeted the Jewish immigrant community from the beginning and used deceptive tactics to steal their money. They even advertised their services in Jewish newspapers and magazines shortly before their collapse, despite their fraudulent activities. These factors suggest that powerful interests may have been willing to intervene on behalf of the Marcus-owned bank once, but not a second time. While allegations of anti-Semitism may have been raised, it's important to consider all possible factors that may have contributed to the bank's failure. Furthermore, Bernard Marcus was pardoned after serving just 27 months in prison by New York Governor Herbert Lehman. This move seems to contradict the theory that the German-Jewish banking establishment sought to destroy Marcus and his family as Herbert Lehman held from the Lehman Brothers banking family and was also close to Albert Cohn, Marcus's brother-in-law. Lehman had even presided over Marcus's appeal and was the only judge who argued for his conviction to be overturned. It's been alleged that it was Albert Cohn who lobbied Lehman to grant the pardon. The trial and imprisonment of Bernard Marcus had a profound impact on his nephew, Roy Cohn. Roy believed that the conviction was unjust and that his uncle was used as a scapegoat by the anti-Semitic cabal. Some of Roy's cousins even suggested that Bernard's conviction is what led him to fight the establishment. However, it is more likely that Cohn's behavior stemmed from a general resentment of the law and a belief that it did not apply to him. This sentiment was also evident in Bernard Marcus's conduct during the investigation and trial related to his role as the president of the Bank of the United States. Roy Cohn's grandfather and uncle were not the only influential individuals on his family's maternal side. Celia Cohen Marcus, his grandmother, was the sister of Joshua Lionel Cohen, who founded Lionel Corporation, a well-known producer of model railroads and toy trains. Cohen's origins began while working for Acme Electric Light Company, registering patents for lamps and motors in 1899. The same year, he was awarded a $12,000 contract from the U.S. Navy to design and manufacture fuses to ignite submarine mines. Cohen used the money to finance the creation of Lionel Corporation in 1900. 
While he is best known as the longtime and founding president of Lionel Corporation, he was also a director of the Bank of the United States at the time of its demise. While Bernard Marcus had been convicted and sentenced to prison in Sing Sing, Cohen managed to avoid charges with the help of Fred Pitterit, the special deputy banking superintendent overseeing the bank's liquidation. Despite personally attending bank directors' meetings where fraudulent loans were approved, Cohen settled for only $5,000 and claimed to have known nothing of the bank's criminal activities. This again weakens the theory that the prosecution of Bernard Marcus was part of a plot against the Marcus family by other Jewish banking families. As a side note, Pitterit's son would become a prominent figure at the New York Federal Reserve. Lionel Corporation would peak in the 1950s as the world's largest toy manufacturer, but its success was short-lived, and by the end of the 1950s, Cohen and his son had sold their shares to none other than Roy Cohn himself. Roy's involvement with the company was mired in controversy, with allegations of suspect financial activity and ties to organized crime networks. Friends of Cohn's claimed that he persuaded people to buy Lionel stock while secretly shorting the company, resulting in financial losses for investors. Cohn also sidestepped federal regulations by borrowing large sums from U.S. and foreign sources to buy Lionel stock and had already become involved with mob figures like Mo Dalitz and Tony Salerno. Roy Cohn's family tree has been the subject of various claims and allegations. According to his biographer, Nicholas von Hoffman, Cohn's maternal grandmother, Celia Cohen Marcus, was rumored to have suffered from serious mental illness. Similarly, one of his uncles, Jesse Marcus, was suspected to be either mentally retarded or brain damaged, possibly due to a congenital condition or the misuse of forceps during the delivery. Some members of the Cohn family even believed that Dora Marcus, Roy Cohn's mother, required institutionalization due to her eccentricities. These accounts provide insight into the potential influences and challenges that Cohn may have faced growing up. One cousin recalled how Dora dominated her son from the moment he was born in 1927, telling her husband Al, this is my baby, I'm going to bring this child up and you're going to have nothing to say about it. Roy Cohn's childhood and relationship with his mother had a profound impact on his character. According to some of his relatives, his mother's neurotic and sociopathic tendencies left an undeniable mark on him. From a young age, Roy was aware of his parents' unhappy marriage and was able to play them against each other with ease. He was never denied anything and could always find someone on his side. This permissiveness led to Cohn playing by his own set of rules unconcerned with what others thought or what was considered right or wrong. One of his law partners described Cohn as being free from the rules that most people go by. Whatever he wanted at any given moment was the right thing for him. From a young age, Roy Cohn displayed an innate talent for the trade of human calculus, deal-making, swapping, maneuver, and manipulation. By the age of 12, he was already leveraging his father's political connections to secure jobs for men at the post office and collecting a finder's fee for his efforts. Those who knew Cohn at the time noted that he felt more at ease in the company of powerful businessmen and political power brokers than with children his own age. However, despite his differences, 
Cohn did develop a small group of close childhood friends, some of whom would go on to dramatically impact his career trajectory. These friends included Cy Newhouse Jr., who later became the head of the Condé Nast publishing empire that includes publications such as Vanity Fair, Vogue, GQ, and The New Yorker, among many others. Edwin Weissel Jr., who became Assistant Attorney General under President Lyndon B. Johnson, and Generoso Jean Pope Jr., who eventually ran the National Enquirer. Cohn's aunt, Libby Marcus, noted that whenever he threw a party, it was typically only attended by Jean Pope Jr. and Edvin Weissel Jr. All other attendees were powerful figures in politics or business. He didn't bother too much with people his own age. Gene Pope Jr. shared Roy's interest in politics and the pursuit of power. Gene was the favorite son of Generoso Pope Sr., an Italian immigrant who came to the U.S. penniless and rose to the top of the nation's concrete industry. Pope Sr. was a controversial figure due to his admiration of Italian fascism and his ties to Mussolini, the Vatican, and New York's top mobsters. Pope Sr. was also close to prominent politicians such as Franklin D. Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Thomas Dewey, and William O'Dwyer. Despite his father's controversial connections, Gene would go on to run the National Enquirer, and his friendship with Cohn would later be instrumental in their ability to manipulate the media for political gain and for the gain of their clients. Generoso Pope Sr. was particularly close with Frank Costello, who had helped Pope secure lucrative contracts for his concrete company, Colonial Sand and Stone. These deals allowed Colonial to become the largest concrete company in the country and made Pope Sr. one of the wealthiest businessmen of his time. Despite his organized crime ties, Pope Sr. was considered a legitimate businessman, thanks in part to his political connections and influence. The Pope family's ties to Costello were so strong that Frank Costello had been chosen to be the godfather to Gene Pope Jr. Costello later played a pivotal role in guiding Gene Pope Jr. Following a brief stint working in psychological operations for the CIA, Pope Jr. received a loan from Costello to found the National Enquirer. Pope Jr.'s son, Paul Pope, described Frank Costello's influence on the family as a guardian angel whose power was felt but not seen. The Pope family's rise to power and wealth in New York was built on a system of quid pro quo deals, which became their modus operandi. Through Gene Pope Sr.'s control of the city's concrete industry and essential monopoly on Italian-language newspapers, he had a stronghold on the Italian immigrant voting bloc, making him a force that politicians could not ignore. Gene Pope Jr. would later describe his family's role in New York and national politics, stating, we made deals. That's how judges got made, DAs, things like that. That's when you did all your taking. I mean, I did everything from fixing parking tickets to making judges. This system of exchange was later adopted by Roy Cohn, who referred to the system as his favor bank. Throughout his life, Roy Cohn maintained a close relationship with the Pope family, particularly Gene Pope Sr., Cohn later reflected on their relationship, saying that Pope Sr. had more to do with his political career than any other person. Cohn admired Pope Sr. for his magnetic personality, 
and he learned many practical political skills from him, including the importance of the favor bank system and mob-linked businessmen's influence on political careers. Gene Pope Sr.'s influence extended beyond politics into the world of law. He pulled strings to secure the appointment of Irving Saypole as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, where Roy Cohn subsequently served as Assistant Attorney. According to Cohn, Saypole's appointment was due to the influence of Pope Sr., along with Tammany Hall's Carmine DeSapio and mobster Frank Costello. Saypole's focus on prosecuting communists led to Cohn's involvement in the infamous trial of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, and, shortly thereafter, the McCarthy hearings. Roy Cohn's relationship with J. Edgar Hoover also played a crucial role in his appointment as Joe McCarthy's chief counsel during the anti-communist hearings. The position had almost gone to Robert F. Kennedy, who was a lifelong rival and bitter enemy of Cohn's. As McCarthy's counsel, Cohn was ruthless and seemingly untouchable, destroying many careers and lives during the Red and Lavender Scares. However, his involvement in attempting to blackmail the Army in exchange for preferential treatment for his rumored lover and committee consultant, David Shine, led to his downfall. Notably, Shine's sister, Renee, married to Lester Crown, son of the super-mob-linked Henry Crown, shortly before Shine became involved with Cohn and McCarthy. Roy Cohn's use of blackmail was not limited to his infamous attempt to pressure the Army. He also targeted diplomats, such as Charles Thayer, the U.S. Consul General in Munich, Germany, after Thayer's brother-in-law, Charles Bolin, was nominated for an ambassadorship by President Eisenhower. Despite no solid evidence of communist affiliations in either case, both Thayer and Bolin were hated by the McCarthyite right. Cohn had learned that Thayer had produced a son with a woman during a brief marriage in Mexico and threatened to inform Thayer's aged mother of the affair by shoehorning it into the public confirmation hearings of Charles Bolin, who had been nominated to serve as a U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union. Fearing that the news would greatly distress his elderly mother, Thayer resigned from the State Department. Cohn also liked to use sexual blackmail, as was discussed with his ties to Louis Rosenstiel, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Blue Sweet Parties. During the Lavender Scare, one of the main concerns was that communists would trap gay men and use the blackmail to subvert the U.S. political system. Ironically, it would seem that the anti-communist group dedicated to eradicating these forces, a group Cohn was directly affiliated with, were themselves the ones adept at using this type of blackmail to their advantage. After all, it had been J. Edgar Hoover and the Catholic Church, which was dominated by Cardinal Spellman, that had originally backed and legitimized Joseph McCarthy and his now infamous witch hunt. Cardinal Spellman, the Archbishop of New York from 1939 until his death in 1967, was a very powerful figure in the city. Gene Pope Jr. would later recall, you couldn't get a job in New York without Spellman's okay. He controlled everything with an iron fist. He controlled the legislature, the city council. He controlled everything. Cardinal Spellman was a control freak who was known to interpret any opposition to his will as communist subversion. Much like J. Edgar Hoover, Spellman's power was likely the reason he was able to keep his homosexual double life secret. Spellman's sexual activities 
were said to involve not only the infamous Blue Suite parties at the Plaza Hotel, but also private parties at his own mansion. According to Spellman biographer John Cooney, in New York's clerical circles, Spellman's sex life was a source of profound embarrassment. There were stories of him seducing altar and choir boys, having his favorites among handsome young priests, and was said to have had lovers both inside and outside the clergy. There's an interesting anecdote related to Cardinal Spellman's private life, which sheds some light on his attitude towards his affairs. According to John Cooney, a choir boy who had a sexual relationship with Spellman was particularly vocal about it. Sex researcher C.A. Tripp stumbled upon this relationship accidentally and was surprised that Spellman wasn't more discreet about it. Tripp asked the choir boy why Spellman wasn't worried about his reputation being damaged if news got out, to which the boy replied, the archbishop says, who would ever believe that? Despite his high-profile position, Cardinal Spellman believed that his power and influence would protect him from any scrutiny or exposure, allowing him to carry on his sexual exploitations however he saw fit. Rod Dreyer of the American Conservative wrote in a detailed article about Spellman's double life in 2019, stating that Cardinal Spellman was confident that he would never be outed and that if someone tried, no one would believe it and they wouldn't have until today. While the secret lives of Hoover and Spellman were similar and potentially intimately connected, only Hoover was blackmailed, not only by organized crime, but also by American intelligence agencies. According to David Talbot's book, The Devil's Chessboard, in mid-1953, CIA Director Alan Dool's ally, William Bundy, was targeted by Senator Joseph McCarthy's witch hunt this led Dules to put the squeeze on Hoover, who continued to feed McCarthy and Roy Cohn damaging information on his Washington enemies. Alan Dules, himself the subject of a thick dossier in Hoover's office documenting his adulterous trysts, made sure the CIA maintained the blackmail on Hoover. Talbot notes, and as we discussed in Chapter 2, the CIA counterintelligence chief James Angleton was rumored to have possessed and shown off pictures of Hoover and Clyde Tolson together. Dules had also compiled a lengthy dossier on Joe McCarthy's sex life, which included allegations of homosexuality. Talbot details these allegations. The senator who relentlessly hunted down homosexuals in government, i.e. McCarthy, was widely rumored to hunt the bird circuit near Grand Central Station as well as gay hideaways in Milwaukee. Drew Pearson got wind of the stories but was never able to get enough proof to run with them. But the less discriminating Hank Greenspun, editor and publisher of the Las Vegas Sun, who was locked in an ugly war of words with McCarthy, let the allegations fly. Greenspun had been given access to the Pearson files, and he had picked up his own McCarthy stories involving young hotel bellboys and elevator operators during the senator's gambling trips to Vegas. Joe McCarthy is a bachelor of 43 years, wrote Greenspun. He seldom dates girls, and if he does, he laughingly describes it as window dressing. It is common talk among homosexuals who rendezvous at the White Horse Inn in Milwaukee that Senator Joe McCarthy has often engaged in homosexual activities. In the world of Beltway blackmail, 
allegations of Senator Joseph McCarthy's homosexuality were dismissed by J. Edgar Hoover's inner circle, as Hoover had his own set of secret files on McCarthy's sex life. Instead of homosexuality, Hoover's files allegedly contained disturbing stories of McCarthy drunkenly groping young girls, allegedly so frequently that it became common knowledge around the Capitol. Walter Trohan, Washington bureau chief of the Chicago Tribune, witnessed McCarthy molest one such girl and remarked, he just couldn't keep his hands off young girls. Why the communist opposition didn't plant a minor on him and raise the cry of statutory rape, I don't know. Yet, as previously discussed, it appears that the anti-communist forces that surrounded McCarthy, as opposed to the communist opposition, was the side that most readily engaged in such operations. And it is entirely possible that McCarthy could have been targeted and entrapped by some of his ostensible allies, given that he wielded considerable power and his indiscretions were said to have been widely known in those circles. However, it was McCarthy's relationship with David Shine, the chief consultant to his committee, that ultimately brought him down. Some historians believe that Shine was Roy Cohn's lover, which was the deciding factor in McCarthy and Cohn's fall from grace. Though the claims of a romantic relationship between Cohn and Shine have been the subject of speculation for several decades, there is no way of knowing for sure. Nevertheless, the explosive sexual subtext to the power struggles in Washington in the 1950s highlights the use of blackmail as a tool for gaining power and control. During Roy Cohn and David Scheid's infamous European tour, the German press reported on their flirtatious antics in a hotel lobby and how they left their hotel room in shambles after a vigorous round of horseplay. One eyebrow-raising story reported by Time magazine involved the pair taking adjoining rooms at a Washington hotel every week. On one occasion, they were forced to take two separate rooms, which caused Shine to start quite a hassle in the lobby as he expressed his disapproval. While it's unclear whether the two were involved in a romantic relationship, the relationship between Roy Cohn and David Shine had a significant impact on the Army McCarthy hearings. When David Shine, who had been drafted in 1953, was due to be shipped overseas, Cohn was willing to use the full force of the McCarthy machine to protect him. Cohn was reported as saying, We'll wreck the Army. The Army will be ruined. If you pull a dirty, lousy, stinking, filthy, shit double-crossed like that. The targeting of the Army did lead to downfall, just not the Army's. Roy just didn't understand you don't fuck with the military-industrial complex. The Army responded by compiling the Shine Report, revealing all the ways that Cohn and McCarthy had sought to blackmail the Army. The ensuing Army-McCarthy hearings ultimately ended McCarthy's reign and humiliated Cohn, overshadowing him for the rest of his career. The intensity of the controversy would also provoke the dissolution of the close friendship between Roy Cohn and David Shine. Roy Cohn returned to New York after the end of McCarthyism, and thanks to his father's friend, Judge David Peck, joined the Sachs, Bacon, and O'Shea law firm in 1957. David Peck was associated with Thomas Dewey and was also a lawyer following his judgeship with Sullivan and Cromwell, a Wall Street firm run by the Dules brothers. 
Cohn quickly rose to dominance in the firm, and some accuse him of contributing to its declining reputation in the 1960s. Despite these accusations and the firm's decline, Cohn was making a name for himself, as well as a significant amount of money during this time. However, Roy Cohn's feud with the Kennedys, particularly Robert Bobby Kennedy, cast a shadow over what should have been a prosperous time for him. Cohn was always wary of Bobby Kennedy, stating, I knew when Bobby Kennedy was lurking nearby, nothing good could happen to me. This concern only grew when he learned of JFK's plans to run for president, as it would likely mean his mortal enemy would be appointed to a powerful position in the future administration. Subsequently, Cohn threw his support behind Lyndon B. Johnson in the Democratic primary in order to keep the Kennedys from power, even lobbying Carmine DeSapio of New York's Tammany Hall to back Johnson. As Roy Cohn's feud with the Kennedys intensified following Bobby Kennedy's appointment as Attorney General, he saw refuge in his powerful connections, including ties to major figures in organized crime. In fact, in 1960, the same year John Kennedy won the presidential election, Cohn was the guest of honor at a New Year's Eve party hosted by Mo Dallitz, a close associate of Meyer Lansky and a key figure in the Jewish Mafia. The same year, Cohn had been engaging in illegal financial schemes involving his uncle's company, Lionel. Cohn's control over Lionel had been arranged with the help of Los Angeles accountant Eli Boyer, who, with Cohn, would also be involved in an investment project alongside Mo Dallitz and his associates. Roy initially attempted to reconcile with the Kennedys by writing a letter claiming he harbored no ill will, but his pleas were ignored. Former Congressman Cornelius Neil Gallagher, who had become friends with Cohn while representing him in a legal case, said that Roy was very set back at the fact that Bobby was now named as Attorney General. He was very disturbed. Roy felt, and rightfully so, that they were coming for him. And in fact, there was a Get Roy Cohn team put together alongside a Get Jimmy Hoffa team. The Get Roy Cohn team was later confirmed by Robert Arum, who worked as an assistant U.S. attorney in New York at the time. It was known that Bobby Kennedy and U.S. attorney Robert Morgenthau both harbored a deep personal hatred for Cohn, leading to three separate court cases against him. Despite this, Cohn managed to avoid conviction in all three cases, partly due to luck in one instance. In 1964, Roy Cohn was hit with the first of three cases brought against him by the Robert Kennedy-led Justice Department. The grand jury indictment charged him with obstruction of justice and perjury related to his attempts to prevent the indictment of four men involved in a stock swindle scheme with a company called United Die. Cohn's dealings with Mo Dallitz and his associates, including those involved in the Desert Inn, were also heavily scrutinized during the case. During the trial, it was revealed that Cohn had called on his business associate, Mo Dallitz, to assist in intimidating men tied to the United Die swindle so they would lie under oath to the grand jury. It also emerged that Cohn, Dallitz, Eli Boyer, Sam Garfield, a close associate of Dallitz and a central figure in the United Die scandal, and Allard Rowan, the manager of the mob-linked Desert Inn, had all been original investors and business partners in the Sunrise Hospital. During Cohn's trial, 
His defense was based on the assertion that the two Bobbies, Robert Kennedy and Robert Morgenthau, were after him because of personal vendettas. Cohn claimed that Kennedy was seeking revenge because Cohn had beaten him out for the position of counsel to Joe McCarthy, while Morgenthau was targeting Cohn because Cohn had helped to investigate his father during the McCarthy hearings. Cohn relied heavily on his powerful allies during the trial, including the Newhouse and Hearst media empires, and prominent figures such as Cardinal Spellman and J. Edgar Hoover. According to Nicholas von Hoffman, Spellman's ties to Cohn were so well known throughout New York that it enabled him to put the connection to use in his lawyerly tricks and served as Roy's insurance that there would be some political constraints on what Bobby Kennedy might do in his quest to send Cohn to prison, in large part because of Bobby Kennedy's own Catholic connections. Hoover was more of immediate assistance to Cohn at this time, with a lawyer who worked alongside Cohn at Sachs, Bacon, and O'Shea claiming that Hoover gave Roy the government's case, not directly, but from FBI agents and witnesses. Despite this help, things were not going well for him in the trial, with a single juror holding out for conviction. It later emerged that Cohn and his legal team had attempted to have this juror, an African-American woman, replaced before deliberation, assuming she would vote to convict. Unfortunately for her, and perhaps purely coincidentally, her father was killed in a car accident during the deliberation, and she was subsequently excused from the jury. The presiding judge reluctantly ruled a mistrial as a result of her dismissal. The case was later retried, but resulted in an acquittal. Cohn's defense lawyer, Frank Reichel, caught a key government witness, Sam Garfield, in a lie related to his denial that the government had offered him leniency for his role in the United Dye stock swindle if he testified against Cohn. This revelation helped Cohn's vendetta defense. The second trial Cohn faced was in the Fifth Avenue Coach Lines case, where he was charged with bribery, conspiracy, extortion, and blackmail for allegedly bribing a city appraiser to help his client, Fifth Avenue Coach, win a higher award in a pending condemnation trial. The Fifth Avenue Coach Lines case took a different turn compared to the United Die case. Cohn's defense attorney, Joseph Brill, suffered a heart attack in the middle of the case, which some suspected was a ploy for Cohn to serve as his own defense lawyer. Regardless of whether this speculation is true, Cohn's self-representation allowed him to testify without being cross-examined and offer a seven-hour summation, which included a passionate declaration of his love for America. Cohn's performance reportedly moved both him and the jurors to tears, and he was acquitted of all charges. Cohn's third trial was again related to the Fifth Avenue Coach Lines case and saw him accused of bribery, conspiracy, and filing false reports to the Securities and Exchange Commission. The government's case against Cohn involved deposits that he had arranged with the money Fifth Avenue Coach received as a result of a condemnation award. One of these deposits was for $500,000 in Geoffrey's Bank in Belgium, which was made the same day that Fifth Coach received the award. $100,000 was then sent to Cohn's personal bank account the next day. Cohn testified that the money was a payment he was owed by Arno Newman, a friend with whom he had business dealings and who was also an officer of Geoffrey's bank. 
The other mysterious deposit was never fully explained. Cohn was acquitted when the government's strategy of offering former business associates leniency for testifying against him backfired yet again. However, the court did find that Cohn benefited from the use of Fifth Avenue's money to pay loans made to him by other directors and that he engaged in a cover-up of the involvement of two company directors in suspect financial schemes. The appearance of Arno Newman in the Fifth Avenue Coach Lines case is noteworthy because Newman's family bank, named after his son, Geoffrey, would later be implicated in illegal arms deals with Israeli intelligence during the 1980s, around the same time as the Iran-Contra affair. These deals ultimately led to the bankruptcy of Geoffrey's bank in 1981. However, no legal consequences were ever imposed on the Newman family for the bankruptcy. A key figure in the Mossad-linked smuggling of weapons through Belgium at the time was David Benelli, a Belgian-Israeli dual citizen. He was also an official business partner of the Newman family. It was later revealed, according to Belgian investigative reporter Willy Van Dam, that David Benelli's real last name was Azalei, and that his brother was Avner Azalei, who worked closely with Mark Rich, a Mossad-connected commodity speculator and later fugitive. Van Dam would also assert that both Azalei brothers worked for Mossad. Roy Cohn's legal troubles were not limited to the cases brought against him by the Get Roy Cohn team. He was also indicted multiple times for violating banking laws. However, it was the conduct of the two prosecutors, Robert Morgenthau and Bobby Kennedy, that ultimately resulted in a flip of the narrative. Once seen as an attack dog during the McCarthy era, Cohen became viewed as a victim of a witch hunt himself. This view has some basis in reality, as Cohn's mail was illegally intercepted during his 1964 trial, and negative stories were leaked to the press by the government to sway jurors. However, it was simultaneously true, as we've discussed, that Roy Cohn had built a reputation as a ruthless lawyer with ties to organized crime and this is what made him a target for Robert Morgenthau and Bobby Kennedy. Despite the two's best efforts, none of the cases stuck, resulting in Cohn gaining an aura of invincibility, respectability, and even sympathy. Though Cohn came out of the trials with an uplifted public image, his rivalry with Bobby Kennedy was only further deepened. One of the many things that Roy Cohn and J. Edgar Hoover shared was having Bobby Kennedy as an enemy. Hoover not only subverted the Kennedy-led effort to get Roy Cohn by passing Cohn the government's case against him on at least one occasion, he also looked for ways to bring Kennedy down. This was not motivated by Kennedy's efforts to indict Cohn, but instead by his efforts as Attorney General to rein in Hoover and bring down the organized crime networks that had reportedly blackmailed Hoover and later formed an unsavory alliance with him. According to Nicholas von Hoffman, regarding Hoover's strategy, hurting Kennedy demanded some ingenuity, for the target was clean on money, far cleaner on sex than his brother, and in short, not an easy one to bring down. One approach might be to embarrass him with his liberal constituency to depict him as a ruthless attorney general, indifferent to the Bill of Rights, and individual liberty. To put the plan into effect, Roy was needed as a membrane of protection for the director. Others were needed as well, including Congressman Gallagher, 
who was making a reputation for himself in the House as a civil libertarian, a legislator committed to preventing the government from turning itself by aid of computers, lie detectors, and advanced electronics into a free world version of Big Brother. Roy Cohn, known for his connections to the mafia and corrupt political figures, once called his friend Cornelius Neil Gallagher to set up a meeting with a man named Sid Zagri. Zagri was the chief lobbyist for the Teamsters Union and claimed to have information about real, substantive abuses in the United States that could lead to congressional hearings. It's important to note that at the time, Bobby Kennedy had targeted Cohn and also had his sights set on Jimmy Hoffa, the organized crime-linked head of the Teamsters Union. This meant that the Teamsters had their own score to settle with Bobby Kennedy, making their meeting with Cohn all the more suspicious. During the meeting, Sid Zagri presented a trove of documents to Neil Gallagher that aimed to discredit Bobby Kennedy's strike force concept and requested Gallagher host hearings over the material. Gallagher was hesitant and questioned the legality of how the documents were obtained, to which Zagri responded that Roy Cohn had promised Neil would do as requested. The meeting turned sour and Neil Gallagher ejected Zagri from his office. Cohn called Gallagher the day after the meeting with Zagri, angry that Gallagher had not committed to hosting hearings on the documents. He revealed that the documents were authentic and came from the FBI, telling Gallagher, you made a big mistake. The documents all come from Mr. Hoover and Mr. Deke DeLooch. Mr. Hoover will consider it a very personal favor if you chair these hearings. He's sick and tired of the bullshit of Bobby Kennedy. Cohn promised that if Gallagher hosted the hearings, he would receive favors from both Hoover and Teamster boss Jimmy Hoffa. However, Gallagher did not want to get involved in the battle, stating, I don't agree with what Bobby's doing. I think it's horrible. I don't agree with what Hoover's doing. It's even worse. Cohn warned him, you're going to be sorry. I know how the FBI work. If you're not their friend, you're their enemy. Cohn later sent Gallagher a letter prepared for his signature, demanding that the Attorney General at the time, Nicholas Katzenbach, appear before a congressional committee regarding the illegal bugging of civil rights activist Martin Luther King Jr. When Gallagher asked who had prepared the letter, he found out it was Roy Cohn. Cohn, when contacted by Gallagher, asserted that Hoover had dictated the letter because he's sick and tired of Bobby Kennedy proclaiming himself the great liberal when he himself signed the authorizations of this bugging. Despite Cohn's pressure, Gallagher declined to host the hearings and refused to sign the letter. Cohn once again warned him, I told you before, if you're not their friend, you're their enemy. They're gonna get you. In 1968, during Gallagher's re-election campaign, Hoover made good on this threat and leaked a story to Life magazine that accused Gallagher of being tied to mobster Joseph Bayon Joe Ziccarelli. The story was based on transcripts of taped conversations allegedly between Gallagher and Ziccarelli. While the FBI later denied the authenticity of these recordings, some have suggested that the tapes might have been genuine and the FBI only denied their validity to avoid admitting they had illegally wiretapped Gallagher. Given that Gallagher had been friends with Roy Cohn for a long time and Ziccarelli's connection to Louis Rosenstiel, who was close to both Cohn and Hoover, the Gallagher-Ziccarelli tie is not outside the realm of possibility. 
However, the Life magazine story linking Gallagher to the Mafia raises some eyebrows. The story provided no evidence that Gallagher benefited from his alleged dealings with the Mafia. It also accused him of asking for their help in disposing of a dead body, despite lack of evidence of foul play. Furthermore, the article did not explain why Gallagher did not call the police or a doctor if the man had died of natural causes on his property. The article suggested that Gallagher's criticisms of the FBI and the Justice Department's wiretaps were motivated by his alliance with the Mafia, but given that the FBI was the source of the accusations in the article and Hoover's own conflict of interest regarding organized crime, these claims against Gallagher should be taken with a grain of salt. After the life story was published, Gallagher was allegedly threatened by Hoover once again. This threat was again conveyed by Roy Cohn, who told Gallagher that he had to resign or face an even more salacious story being published. The new story would involve a man dying in bed after having sex with Gallagher's wife and Gallagher allegedly asking for mafia help to dispose of the body. Neil Walsh, a mutual friend of Cohn and Gallagher, also relayed the same message to Gallagher and told him he had 10 days to resign. Cohn claimed that Hoover wanted Gallagher out of Congress because he was considered too dangerous for not complying with his demands. Despite the threats, Gallagher spoke out against Hoover's intimidation tactics on the House floor and won re-election. However, in 1972, Gallagher was indicted for perjury and tax evasion. Regarding Hoover's attempt to blackmail him, Gallagher later stated, the Faustian contracts that were daily made by important parts of the United States media on these kinds of deals without any recourse as to what the hell they were really building up has become part and parcel of why we don't have a goddamn presidential candidate around anymore. You know it's okay to talk about these things, but information is controlled and the bastards referring to men like Hoover have the information and they use guys like Roy Cohn as their intermediaries. According to Nicholas von Hoffman, Gallagher's speech on the House floor exposing Hoover's threat is significant considering Roy Cohn's later involvement in similar political power plays that ultimately affected vice presidential candidates in 1972 and 1984. The manipulation of media was just one tactic used by Cohn and allies such as Hoover in their complex favor bank system. Roy Cohn played a significant political role as an intermediary for J. Edgar Hoover, particularly in political battles and power struggles. Cohn and Hoover were familiar with the power of blackmail as both had allegedly been blackmailed themselves. There is evidence of both men participating in sexual blackmail rackets, including the infamous Plaza Hotel Blue Suite parties alongside Louis Rosenstiel, as well as Hoover's ties to Sherman Kaminsky. Moreover, there are ties linking Cohn and Hoover to the Profumo Affair, a sexual blackmail scandal in the United Kingdom during the 1960s. The key link between the three men and the affair was Thomas Corbally, who used Cohn as an intermediary to pass information on the scandal to the FBI. Thomas Corbally came from a family of private investigators with ties to organized crime, including Meyer Lansky and his immediate network. These ties were extensive enough that the family used their detective agency to benefit organized crime. Examples include spying on federal agents in the 1920s and 1930s. 
According to authors Anthony Summers and Stephen Durrell, Thomas Corbley was a member of the OSS during World War II, but this claim has been called nothing more than an embellishment by other authors such as Stephen Snyder. What appears to be true, however, is that Corbley served in military intelligence via the War Department Detachment, a group whose name was used interchangeably with the Department of the Army Detachment, a name used as cover by the CIA in Europe in the post-war period. In the 1950s, Corbley became a jet-setting detective, courting the rich and famous, and would meet and develop a close friendship with Roy Cohn, who would later go on to act as Corbley's attorney. In the 1960s, Corbley lived in London, sharing an apartment with William Mellon Hitchcock, a member of the wealthy Mellon family. William Mellon Hitchcock was a former in-law of David Bruce, an OSS station chief who had close ties to William Wild Bill Donovan, as well as CIA Director William Casey. David Bruce was serving as U.S. Ambassador to the United Kingdom at the same time Corbley and Mellon Hitchcock lived together in London. During their time living together, William Mellon Hitchcock and Thomas Corbley were known for hosting extravagant parties attended by the elite, which some described as wild or orgies. Meanwhile, Corbley was also making connections with organized crime in the UK, particularly with Irish gangster Johnny Francis. Francis would later help Philadelphia mob boss Angelo Bruno establish a foothold in various London businesses, including the Colony Sports Club, where Meyer Lansky associate and DC-based mobster Joe Neslin had a significant stake. Angelo Bruno and Johnny Francis both worked with Ronnie and Reggie Cray, twin brothers who ran the London-based organized criminal network known as The Firm. Steven Snyder and Douglas Thompson have both noted that the Crays were known to supply teenage boys to conservative MP and former Churchill aide Lord Robert Bushby during the time they were associated with Johnny Francis. Declassified MI5 documents reveal that British intelligence was aware of the Boothby Cray Association, including sex parties and rent boys, at the time these events took place. The documents describe both Boothby and Ronnie Cray as hunters of young men. Thomas Corbley was also a member of the Claremont Club, a group of elite gamblers in London's Mayfair district that included powerful members of Margaret Thatcher's government. Several members would later develop close ties to Robert Maxwell and the international arms trade. The Claremont Club was opened by John Aspinall, who gave Corbley 3,000 pounds shortly after opening the exclusive casino. While Aspinall claimed it was to settle an old gambling debt with the detective, others associated with the club claimed it was meant as a tribute to organized crime networks connected to Corbley. Claremont Club members at the center of this nexus included David Sterling, Sir James Goldsmith, and Roland Walter Rowland. Lord Robert Boothby was also a member of the Claremont Club. David Sterling and Roland Walter Rowland had significant ties to the global arms trade, as well as relationships with Saudi weapons dealer Adnan Khashoggi and Jeffrey Epstein. Both Sterling and Rowland were also connected to the Iran-Contra operation. Rowland and James Goldsmith were also close associates of Robert Maxwell. Goldsmith was also tied to white-collar crime-linked figures such as Charles Keating, Michael Milken, and Jeffrey Epstein. Charles Keating and Michael Milken 
were directly connected to the savings and loan scandal of the 1980s, which, according to journalist Pete Bruton, involved a collaboration between the CIA and organized crime. Another figure at the Claremont Club, Jack DeLaw, later backed Robert Maxwell's daughter, Christine Maxwell's Homeland Security-focused software venture, Chiliad. In the context of Corbley and the Profumo affair, another significant member was Stephen Ward, an osteopath who became intimately acquainted with top figures in Britain's aristocracy through W. Avril Harriman. Interestingly, Harriman was the former governor of New York whose Wall Street firm, Brown Brothers Harriman & Co., had been entangled with financial assets tied to Nazi Germany well after World War II had begun. Harriman's bank also employed George H.W. Bush's father, Prescott Bush, as well as his maternal grandfather, George Herbert Walker. At the time he was promoting Stephen Ward, Harriman was an ambassador at large for the Kennedy State Department. Stephen Ward's connections to top figures in British aristocracy included the Churchills and Sterling Henry Nahum, a photographer for the royal family and a close associate of Lord Louis Mountbatten, Prince Philip's uncle and mentor to Prince Charles. Stephen Ward, Nahum, and Mountbatten were all attendees of the Thursday Club, a gathering where attendees included Prince Philip and the Cray Twins. The Thursday Club dinners were also a platform for the sex parties hosted by Thomas Corbley and William Mellon Hitchcock. Sterling Nahum was also known to host sex parties at his apartment in Piccadilly, with some featuring girls dressed only in Masonic aprons. Stephen Ward was a regular at Nahum's gatherings and similar events hosted by other elites in British society. Stephen Ward's connections to the British elite and his talents were quickly recognized by the intelligence outfit MI6. According to Stephen Snyder, MI6 had a reputation for targeting visiting dignitaries in the UK with sexual blackmail operations and saw Ward's potential in this regard. MI6 agent Harold Tracy first approached Ward in 1952 and cultivated him for years with the help of a close confidant, Warwick Charlton. Tracy regularly passed MI6-derived money to Ward via Charlton, but MI6 has since claimed that they never made operational use of Ward, despite their known interest and funding. In the early 1960s, while Corbley and the Claremont Club were establishing themselves in London, UK Secretary of State for War, John Profumo, met 19-year-old model Christine Keeler. At the time, Keeler was living with Stephen Ward, and shortly after meeting, began having an affair with John Profumo. Christine was at the same time having an affair with Soviet military attaché and intelligence agent Eugene Ivanov. Ward and Ivanov had close ties, and Ward allowed Ivanov and Keeler to use his apartment for their escapades. Ivanov had also sought to use Ward as a back channel between the Soviet Union and the UK during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. MI5 had concerns that Ivanov was working Ward, and Christine Keeler would later claim that Ward was a double agent for both the British and the Soviets. The Profumo scandal began after Christine Keeler, for reasons that are still unclear, confided in Labor MP John Lewis about her affairs with both Ivanov and Profumo. 
John Lewis then informed Profimo's political enemy, Labour MP George Whig, who was also an asset of British intelligence about the affair. Christine Keeler also spoke to the British press, causing the scandal to erupt and ultimately resulting in Profimo's resignation and the collapse of the conservative government led by Harold Macmillan. According to Philip Knightley and Caroline Kennedy, in an affair of state, as cited by Stephen Snyder, it was David Bruce who involved Thomas Corbley directly in the affair. Bruce was asked by Macmillan to uncover the truth of the affair and subsequently turned to Thomas Corbley for information due to his profession as a private detective and his close friendships with both Stephen Ward and William Mellon Hitchcock. However, Anthony Summers and Stephen DeRille in their book, The Secret Worlds of Stephen Ward, offer a totally different account, asserting that Ward himself had dropped in on Thomas Corbley and William Mellon Hitchcock confessing everything and begging for their help to prevent Christine Keeler's story from going public. Ward, Corbley, and Mellon Hitchcock would meet with David Bruce's assistant, Alfred Wells, where Stephen Ward confessed the details of the Profimo affair. It appears that Thomas Corbley and Mellon Hitchcock were already aware of the affair via Ward at least a month before Christine Keeler spoke to John Lewis. David Bruce's involvement is curious, as he had access to inside information about the affair's security implications for the U.S. State Department and the Anglo-American establishment, but chose not to act on it. During the early stages of the Profumo affair, the FBI, under J. Edgar Hoover's direction, began investigating other girls involved in Stephen Ward's circle. Through his friend and attorney, Roy Cohn, Thomas Corbley kept the FBI up to date on the scandal. The FBI's case files on the affair, known as the Bowtie Dossier, is entirely redacted, as is a 17-page interview the FBI conducted with Thomas Corbley. The redactions were possibly made to conceal the ties between the women associated with Stephen Ward and their potential involvement in efforts to sexually blackmail John F. Kennedy. Peter Del Scott discusses this subject in his book, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, drawing partially on the work of Anthony Summers in his book, Official and Confidential. Meyer Lansky had by the 1930s acquired compromising evidence of Hoover's homosexual activities. In the 1950s, Meyer Lansky and other mob figures, such as Sam Giancana, supplied women to John F. Kennedy some of whom were logged into Hoover's growing files of dirt on the young senator. In the 1960s, this deep political equilibrium was threatened by Bobby Kennedy's war on organized crime, which alienated J. Edgar Hoover. Feeling increasingly threatened, especially after the Kennedys began to collect their own files on Hoover, both Hoover and the mob began to escalate their collection of Kennedy's sexual dirt. At first, Hoover gained White House influence by protecting the Kennedys against mob blackmail, but in 1963, Hoover, desperate, began to leak some of his own dirt on Kennedy to the public. Hoover's sexual dirt on the Kennedys began to surface in late June 1963, after the president's peace speech. At American University, with its appeal, let us re-examine our attitude toward the Cold War. On June 20th, the U.S. and the Soviet Union signed an agreement establishing a hotline between the Kremlin and the White House, 
A week later, there was a flurry of veiled hints linking the president to the Profumo story, such as the Drew Pearson, Jack Anderson column for June 29th, Britishers who read American criticisms of Profumo throw back the question, what high American official was involved with Marilyn Monroe? On the same day, in a front page story, the Hearst paper in New York, the Journal American linked the Christine Keeler, Stephen Ward sex ring itself to a high U.S. aide, one of the biggest names in American politics. Back in 1960, after his election, but before his inauguration, the president had slept with two members of the ring, including Mariella Novotny, a former London-based stripper. Mariella Novotny, originally named Stella Marie Capes, worked as a stripper at the Black Sheep, a Mayfair nightclub where she met Stephen Ward. Horace Dibbon, the club's owner, was a friend of Stephen Ward's, who had a keen interest in hosting sex parties with an alleged occult element. These parties reportedly involved black magic, men in masks, and ritual sadomasochism centered around a master-slave dynamic. Mariella Novotny actively participated in Dibbon's occult-themed sex parties, which were said to have attracted prominent individuals from Harold Macmillan's government as VIP guests, along with Stephen Ward. After a scandal involving Stephen Ward and Horace Dibbon's sex parties was exposed, Mariella Novotny was taken to New York, where she started working as a high-end prostitute out of four different apartments. She had moved to New York due to her relationship with Harry Allen Towers, a British television producer. Novotny and Towers were both charged with running a sexual blackmail ring in New York that targeted United Nations diplomats and other influential men. Novotny's client list reportedly included John F. Kennedy. In 1961, before leaving the U.S., Mariella Novotny handed over her address book containing the names and contact information of influential figures in America to the FBI. The FBI dropped its case against Novotny and Harry Allen Towers, and the agency subsequently destroyed both Novotny's address book and their files regarding Novotny and Towers. Another woman associated with both Stephen Ward and the attempts to sexually blackmail John F. Kennedy was Susie Chang. Chang had been a nurse who turned to modeling and moved to London when she was 19. It is unclear how Chang met Stephen Ward, but she later referred to him as a good, good, good friend, whom she had met in the early 1950s. Susie was connected to Ward's friend and founder of the Thursday Club, Sterling Henry Nahum, and lived in the same London residence as another woman who worked with Stephen Ward. William Mellon Hitchcock, who was Thomas Corbley's roommate in London, described Susie Chang as one of Stephen's girls, and Chang later confirmed that she also knew Thomas Corbley. Mariella Novotny claimed that Susie Chang had a sexual relationship with John F. Kennedy. Susie had been in the U.S. in both 1960 and 1961, making the claim possible. Susie acknowledged knowing John F. Kennedy, but denied having a sexual relationship with him. However, according to Steven Snyder, she became less vehement in her denial over time. In a development that Snyder considered suggestive of shadowy purposes, Susie Chang's mother hired the law firm of William Wild Bill Donovan, the former chief of the OSS, to obtain a visa for Susie Chang to visit the U.S. in 1962. 
This was a significant year for JFK, and it was also the year that the Profumo Affair first emerged. The Profumo Affair emerged in the midst of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which may have influenced Christine Keeler's decision to go public with her story, as Keeler's revelations caused a scandal that destroyed her lover's career and triggered the downfall of the Macmillan government. During the crisis, Ivanov attempted to use Stephen Ward as a back channel to organize a summit conference in England to resolve the crisis. However, the timing of the Profumo affair ensured that Ivanov was quickly recalled to Moscow, tarnishing any plans for the summit. As Peter Del Scott points out, the reports attempting to link John F. Kennedy to the Profumo affair only emerged after his June 1963 peace speech. The speech deeply unsettled the anti-communist factions that included Hoover and Cohn, and stories attempting to tie Kennedy to the scandal were quickly published in the Hearst-owned Journal American. Anthony Summers notes that the paper's editor, Guy Richards, was very much involved in anti-communist networks and had excellent intelligence connections. It should also be noted that Roy Cohn had a close personal relationship with Richard Berlin, the top manager of Hearst newspaper conglomerate that owned the Journal American. Berlin and Cohn were longtime friends, and Cohn was known for placing stories in Hearst newspapers and other publications owned by his close associates, such as Cy Newhouse, to benefit his clients and network. While the Profimo affair was Thomas Corbley's most infamous tie to sexual blackmail rings, it seems that he had a long history of involvement with blackmail and other illicit activities. In addition to his connection to the Profimo affair, he claimed to have started the VIP S&M scene in the Hamptons, which he imported from the UK and was also associated with Heidi Fleiss, the notorious Hollywood madam. He was also said to have had numerous pictures of various individuals engaged in some rather strange sexual practices that were staples of these parties. However, it's important to note that not all of his connections were necessarily tied to sexual blackmail. For example, he was also connected to Jules Kroll of Kroll & Associates, which was known as the CIA of Wall Street, and was believed by French intelligence to have had been a front for the CIA. Interestingly, Corbley was credited by some with the initial success of Kroll & Associates. Another noteworthy individual in Thomas Corbley's inner circle was his mentor, John Steve Brody. Brody was a private investigator with a checkered history, having had several encounters with the legal system, including for his involvement in wiretapping then New York Mayor William O'Dwyer on behalf of his longtime employer, Clendon and Ryan. Ryan was also the chief financial backer of International Services of Information Foundation a private intelligence organization that was founded by OSS veteran Julius Amos. Following his time in the OSS, Amos invested in companies within the country's burgeoning military-industrial complex, some of which were suspected to be fronts for CIA money laundering. Charles Willoughby, Douglas MacArthur's former intelligence chief, was another notable figure connected to the International Services of Information Foundation where he served as a trustee. Clendon and Ryan's son, Clendon and Ryan Jr., had a close relationship with Douglas Caddy, who headed an anti-communist group called Young Americans for Freedom. As roommates at Georgetown University, Ryan Jr. 
was tangentially involved in founding Young Americans for Freedom. Another key member was William F. Buckley, a former CIA officer, founder of the National Review, and Roy Cohn's close friend. John Brody was also associated with Peter Crosby, whose brother, James Crosby, chaired Resorts International in the Bahamas. Notable investors in Resorts International included American National Insurance Company, which was owned by the Moody family, as well as Delafield and Delafield. American National Insurance and Sheer Moody Jr., a close friend of Roy Cohn, will be mentioned in future chapters. Delafield and Delafield is worth noting as it was William Mellon Hitchcock's employer. Peter Crosby, a stock manipulator connected to organized crime figures, was involved in the financial schemes surrounding the United Die stock swindle, which led to Roy Cohn's indictment in the early 1960s. In the 1970s, Crosby and Brody were arrested together, but only Crosby was imprisoned. According to journalist Gary Webb, Brody was not convicted due to his past work with the CIA, an association that Brody denied but was confirmed by Crosby's associates. Webb reported that papers seized from Crosby and Brody at the time of their arrest showed that the two men were involved with many of the same individuals believed to be part of a nationwide network of con artists and organized crime figures. Crosby was certainly associated with such a network. For example, prior to his arrest in 1973, Peter Crosby was involved in questionable financial dealings with William McCarthy, the brother of Texas oil magnate Glenn McCarthy. These dealings revolved around American Montana Oil and Gas, a shell corporation that McCarthy created to acquire properties then controlled by Ajax Oil Company. Other companies, including Sundown Oil Company, which had Paul Roland Jones as a director, were also involved in McCarthy's plans to take over Ajax. Paul Roland Jones was a known figure in Chicago's organized crime scene who relocated to Texas in 1947 and was linked to narcotics trafficking. It's worth noting that Jones had connections to Jack Ruby, the infamous gangster who killed Lee Harvey Oswald after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Crosby and McCarthy also worked with satirist Sonny Basulis as part of this elaborate scheme. Sonny had a business relationship with Alexander Guterma and the Bonami Company, which played a critical role in the United Die swindle. Sonny's past is interesting as he was a World War II pilot who served in the China-Burma-India Theater under General Claire Chenault as a member of the Flying Tigers outfit that was discussed in Chapter 1. After the war, he formed a relationship with Chiang Kai-shek and aided in his travel to Taiwan. He later formed Commerce International Corporation, which developed close ties with China as a military contractor and also served on the Far East Advisory Committee under Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and George W. Bush. Alexander Guterma, a Russian immigrant, arrived in the U.S. in the 1950s first settling in California, then relocating to Florida. There he founded the Shawano Corporation and started trading the corporation's stock in order to acquire other companies. Guterma later made his way to Las Vegas, where he found the Vegas mob at the Desert Inn. 
Duterma then traded Shawano stock for the Isle Capri Hotel in Bay Harbor Islands, forming the nucleus of United Hotels Incorporated. The Desert Inn, managed by Allard Rowan, was very much a focus of the United Die trial against Roy Cohn. In the case against Cohn, the government claimed that Eli Boyer, the accountant who assisted Cohn in taking control of Lionel Corporation, was used by Cohn to convey threats to Rowan, preventing him from providing honest testimony to the grand jury investigating United Die. Boyer confirmed this in his testimony. Moreover, it was revealed that Boyer, Rowan, Garfield, Dallas, and Cohn were all original investors in a venture called Sunrise Hospital. In June 1955, Uterma, Sam Garfield, and Irving Pasternak joined forces to acquire the Franklin County Coal Corporation. That same month, Uterma became associated with Virgil Darty, a director at United Die who later arranged to sell Uterma a substantial block of shares in the company. Uterma then distributed that stock among himself, Garfield, Pasternak, and others. By September of that year, Guterma had become chairman of the United Die Board, with Virgil Darty serving as its president. In the following year, Guterma gained control of a manufacturing company called F.L. Jacobs. Guterma and his associates aimed to loot and divert the assets of F.L. Jacobs for their own purposes and use its credit as collateral for loans, the proceeds of which were diverted to Guterma's own use and benefit. Soon after, Darty informed Guterma about 63,000 shares of the Bon Ami Company for sale, and they arranged for United Die to purchase those shares via a loan from F.L. Jacobs. Guterma later testified that they had taken control of Bon Ami to enable Garfield and Pasternak to satisfy the $519,000 obligation owed by them to United Die. To corroborate Guterma's testimony in the United Die case, the government introduced evidence of various loan transactions involving Garfield, Pasternak, Guterma, and Darty as directors of Bon Ami, many of which involved United Die. When the decision was made to implicate Cohn using the United Die grand jury, Garfield and Pasternak avoided imprisonment by testifying against Cohn and his accomplices. Although their immunity deals were not publicly acknowledged, they played a crucial role in persuading the jury to acquit Cohn during the retrial of the United Die case. By this time, Guterma had already been found guilty and was serving a four-year jail term for embezzling millions of dollars from F.L. Jacobs. Prior to Guterma's arrest and the discovery of the United Die scam, Guterma and Darty used Bon Ami to establish connections with notable figures as they gained a controlling stake in the company. In 1957, they negotiated with an entertainment executive named Matthew Fox to purchase $5 million worth of spot time for Bon Ami commercials. To secure the deal, Bon Ami loaned Fox $115,000, and Fox agreed that Guild Films would supply Bon Ami spot time if he failed to repay the loan, which he ultimately did. Fox was more than just a TV and movie executive. He had previously headed a CIA front in Indonesia, known as the American Indonesian Corporation, until the early 1950s. In that capacity, 
Fox had obtained significant rights to exploit Indonesia's natural resources and managed all Indonesian government buying and selling in the United States. Additionally, he was involved in covertly supporting the CIA-backed Prime Minister of Indonesia, Mohamed Hatta, at the direction of agency intermediaries. That same year, 1957, Guterma engaged in negotiations with Sonny Fasulis, resulting in Fasulis acquiring more than 100,000 shares of Bonami stock, 25,000 of which were owned by another Guterma company, the Chatham Corporation. However, Fasulis lacked the funds to complete the purchase and instead sold the film rights held by his company, Ikpian Associates, to Bon Ami as payment. This deal, known as the Ikpian package, was designed to allow Bon Ami to secure television spot time by transferring the package to Guild Films in exchange for the purchase of a large quantity of television spot time. Prior to their involvement in Bon Ami, it appears that Basulis and Fox were already part of a shadowy financial network that included Virgil Darty. In 1953, Fox served as chairman of Polo Light, a company where Fasulis was president. However, Polo Light was actually a subsidiary of Commerce International Corporation, a company with intelligence connections that Fasulis was president of. Around the same time, in 1954, Fox was reported to be president of C&C Television Corporation, a subsidiary of C&C Super Corporation, where Darty was a director. These connections suggest that Basulis, Fox, and Darty had been linked together years before their involvement in the United Dice situation that led to Guterma's imprisonment. Around the same time the United Dice scandal erupted, an investigation was launched into the Lansing Foundation and the David Josephine and Winfield Baird Foundation, both of which were controlled by New York businessman David Baird. The Baird Foundation was listed as owning 24.5% of the C&C Television Corporation, which Matthew Fox ran, and the foundation also owned significant rights to several other C&C subsidiaries. The Baird Foundation's clients included several organized crime figures, such as Meyer Lansky frontman Louis Chesler and real estate magnates William Zeckendorf and Lawrence Vine. Vine was a partner in the Desert Inn and had bought the Empire State Building from super mob figure Henry Crown, as was discussed in Chapter 1. Other high-profile clients of the Baird Foundation included Allen & Co., which later became closely involved with Les Wexner's mentor, Max Fisher, as well as the director of Maurice L. Rothschild, Nathan Cummings. Cummings was a director of Bonami Company and was personally involved in selling the controlling stake of that company to United Die when it was controlled by Guterma and Darty. Cummings subsequently departed Bonami, which opened spots for Guterma and Darty to sit on the company's board. As for David Baird himself, he and Charles Allen of Allen & Co. were known to have dealings with Guterma even after the Las Vegas mob had exhausted its use of Guterma in the aftermath of United Dies unraveling. In addition, Louis Mortimer Bloomfield, attorney for Permindex and whose law firm was deeply enmeshed with the Bronfman family, wrote to Carlo D'Amelio, 
of Permindex's Italian subsidiary in 1961 describing the interests that Permindex had cultivated among American businessmen, specifically David Baird, in their affairs and projects. Another interesting tie concerning David Baird was his client, Sergei Semenenko, who served as the de facto banker for the Baird Foundation. Semenenko was the vice president of the First National Bank of Boston, whose executives had close ties to the CIA. The Baird Foundation itself was later revealed to be an asset of the CIA's International Organizations Division between 1961 and 1964 and had received over $456,000 in agency funds in pass-throughs that were then piped into CIA programs in the Middle East and Africa. In addition to this direct CIA connection, there may also be a connection between David Baird and Meshulam Rickless, the man who took over Louis Rosenstiel's business empire, as well as purchased his blackmail-ready townhouse around the same time. Jonathan Marshall, in his article, Wall Street, the Supermob, and the CIA, notes, not long after Semenenko left First National at the height of the 1960s merger mania, he began willing and dealing with Baird over the fate of Stanley Warner Corporation, a leading theater owner that Baird had advised on financial matters since 1956. The first public hint of their dealings came in November 1967, when New York City newspapers touted Baird's philanthropy by reporting that he was chairing the annual celebrity ball of the Variety Club of New York in honor of Democratic Rep. Emanuel Seller. Vice chairmen for the ball were Semenenko, Stanley Warner Corporation chairman S.H. Fabian, and Meshulam Rickless, the young Odessa-born chairman of Glen Alden Corporation, a fast-growing conglomerate that was angling to acquire Stanley Warner. Marshall reveals that Emanuel Seller, once the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, was a notable friend of Louis Rosenstiel. He also notes that David Baird received a $3 million finder's fee for his role in arranging the sale of Stanley Warner stock to the Rickless-owned Glen Alden Corporation. Shortly thereafter, Rickless, via Glenn Alden, took control of Rosenstiel's Shenley Industries. The dense web of connections and corruption revealed in these chapters is quite intricate and demonstrates ways in which organized crime, intelligence agencies, and powerful businessmen intersected and collaborated during this era. Some key figures in this network engaged in various forms of blackmail and power plays to ensure the continued growth of both their legal and illegal financial interests. As we'll see, this incestuous web of crime, intrigue, and covert action that was tightly interwoven throughout major events of the 1960s would continue its expansion largely unimpeded and employing many of the same tactics throughout the decades that followed. And that takes us to the end of chapter four. As always, look at this information with a critical eye. Don't forget to support Winnie Webb by buying her books. Like, subscribe, and share the channel. Looking forward to seeing you again for episode five. Love you all. Peace.